The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, my name is Tom Prince. I am the director of the Keck Institute for Space Studies. And I'd like to welcome you to what I think is going to be a very interesting and stimulating evening. Uh, first, though, I'd like to uh, acknowledge and especially thank the W.M. Keck Foundation for their support of the Keck Institute and for supportive events like this. They are a tremendous organization uh, doing very good things for Southern California. Uh, secondly, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the Caltech Y. Uh, they are uh, co-sponsors and co-supporters of this particular event. And third, very briefly, I'd like to uh, describe to you why this particular event is special. And it's different from other Keck Institute events. So the Keck Institute was formed to bring together scientists and engineers from all over the country and all over the world to look in a think tank or brainstorming type mode uh, at ideas or concepts that could impact the future of uh, space exploration and space missions carried out primarily by NASA, but, uh, but generally by any organization. Tonight's a little bit different. Uh, what we do in our normal uh, way of life is to provide resources and support for those teams to uh, carry out their work. One time I was walking down the Olive Walk, uh, and those of you who know it here at Caltech know that there are student houses on either side of that walk. And I was thinking, gosh, we have some of the best students in the world here at Caltech. Why not give them the same resources that we give to scientists and engineers to do their work and see what happens? And so what happens is something like tonight. Tonight's event is not for students, but it's totally by students. Uh, they propose the, this event, they uh, determine the format, they identified the speakers, and then they uh, uh, invited them. And I think you will see very much that this is the A-team of speakers for this uh, type of event. So my job is to get off the podium here and let the real organizer and director of this event uh, uh, take the stage, and that's Eric Schomburg. Eric. Thank you. Uh, good evening. Uh, yeah, my name is Eric Schomburg. I'm a graduate student in the physics department here. Um, in my thesis research, it actually doesn't focus on space at all, uh, but rather uh, the biophysics of electrical activity in the brain. But uh, I've been fascinated by space and astrophysics uh, for quite a while, since I began reading about cosmology um, uh, back in high school. Uh, and like so many others, I dreamt about one day being able to, uh, to travel into space. Um, and the same, the same curiosity that recently led me to ponder the mind, uh, you know, originally had me thinking about the nature of the universe, its origin, and our place in it. Uh, these days, I'm also very interested in our place in society, and by which I mean the responsibilities and the opportunities that scientists have uh, to be engaged in influential citizens, um, both locally and globally. In addition to education, research, and development, uh, this engagement can include public policy and entrepreneurship. Uh, so this is the context out of which my motivation for this topic grew. Uh, one of the things that the Keck Institute does um, is to, they work to provide uh, an opportunity for students to organize uh, ambitious and unique events, uh, from technical workshops to public discussions like this one. Uh, they provided most of the funding and a huge amount of logistical support uh, to make sure that me and my colleagues could think big and put together uh, the best event that we possibly could. And so we're very grateful for that. Um, so I'm a member of the Caltech Y, uh, or a, a committee at the Caltech Y um, that runs the Social Activism Speaker Series, uh, SAS for short. 
the Caltech Y uh, is a nonprofit organization on campus that provides support for teams of students to organize community service events, leadership efforts, social and cultural activities, and outdoor adventures. And the majority of the funding that allows the Y to provide these, uh, these resources for students uh, comes from individual donors, alumni, staff, faculty, and individuals from the community who see the value of these opportunities for students. Uh, some of you in the audience are friends of the Y, and so I want to thank you for what you've made possible. And if you're interested in learning more about the Y and its programs, uh, you, please, please visit the table outside after the event. Uh, speaking of outdoor adventures, um, I was, I was, I'm also a member of the Caltech Alpine Club, and so I was happy to chat with uh, a member of the, of the panel here who uh, doesn't just get rides to high altitudes, but he's also an avid climber and has uh, summited Mount McKinley in, in Alaska even. But anyway, back to the SAS committee. Um, uh, so the SAS at the Y, uh, we, we bring speakers uh, to campus and organize events uh, to engage students and the community as a whole in important social issues. Uh, so our interests vary widely from public health to access to education, human rights, poverty, civil rights, and public policy. Uh, and we also try to explore how science, entrepreneurship, and policy can come together to strengthen each other. Uh, when I heard about the Keck Institute student-led event program, uh, I saw an opportunity to learn more about how the ambitious plans to commercialize space travel uh, might help, as well as challenge scientists uh, and engineers who utilize space technology. So we've put a lot of work into bringing a diverse panel of experts to campus to uh, discuss this, uh, this exciting topic in a lively and interactive uh, manner. And at Caltech, we're lucky to have many of the world's top space scientists, so I've tapped into that uh, and asked Professor Fiona Harrison to moderate the discussion. In addition to being a stellar researcher and the principal investigator of an ambitious uh, space-based high-energy X-ray telescope called New Star, Professor Harrison has been on numerous advisory committees, uh, currently including the Space Studies Board at the National Academies, and she was part of the National Research Council's 2010 Astronomy and Astrophysics Decadal Survey. So re but rather than go through her whole career, I'd like to cut to the chase, uh, let her introduce herself and the panel and the format. So thank you all for coming, uh, and enjoy the discussion. Okay, thanks, Eric. Uh, so I want to add my congratulations to Eric uh, for the phenomenal job he's done with his group of students and also putting together this panel. When he told me he was, you know, who he was going to try to get, I was thinking, good luck. Uh, but it goes to show you that an enthusiastic young student can uh, basically pull anything off. So, uh, so this event is of keen interest to me personally as a scientist and PI of a, a NASA mission and someone who's been involved, as Eric said, in decadal serving, survey planning processes and broader science committees. And the cost of launch vehicles, launch services, and the lack of a vibrant sort of medium scale uh, launch capability in this country comes up over and over again uh, in the profound influence it has on NASA's science program. And with few exceptions like Hubble and and missions that have launched on uh, with a shuttle, science launches are primarily commercial. But on the human space side, uh, our human program has been completely uh, dominated by NASA-developed launch vehicles. And there's a paradigm shift that's taking place in that NASA is now commercializing its cargo launches to the International Space Station, and also eventually talking about commercializing crew launches. 
And what we want to try to investigate today, so I should say another part of this paradigm shift is the emergence of a space tourism uh, industry. And we want to investigate how uh, this, these shifts may uh, offer opportunities or impediments even for uh, NASA's science program. So uh, joining us in the discussion here on my left is John Gruntsfeld. He's the Associate Administrator for NASA's Science Mission Directorate. John uh, actually started his professional career here at Caltech uh, as a, a research scientist in the Space Radiation Lab. And he then moved to the Astronaut Corps and had a very distinguished uh, record, which included uh, servicing the last Hubble, or being involved in the last Hubble servicing mission. And then he started as Associate Administrator in 2012. Uh, next, we have Steve Vesakowitz, who is the Executive Vice President and Chief Technology Officer for Virgin Galactic. Uh, Steve's distinguished career in government service includes as the Chief Financial Officer for the U.S. Department of Energy, Deputy Associate Administrator for Exploration at NASA, and as Branch Chief of Science and Space Programs uh, at the White House Office of Management and Budget. Uh, John Logston is the founder and former director of the George Washington University Space Policy Institute. He's written many books and uh, widely acclaimed uh, articles and essays on space exploration. He was a member of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board, uh, NASA's Advisory Council, and held the Charles A. Lindbergh Chair in Aerospace History at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Uh, Gwen Shotwell is the president of SpaceX. Uh, prior to joining the company in 2002, she spent a decade uh, at the Aerospace Corporation. Um, she's a very distinguished uh, engineer and manager. Uh, she won, in 2011, the World Technology Award for Individual Achievement in Space, and in 2012 was inducted into the Women in Technology International Hall of Fame. And finally, only because he's in alphabetical order, is my distinguished colleague, Paul Wenberg. Uh, he's the Stanton Avery Professor of Atmospheric Chemistry and Environmental Science and Engineering at Caltech. And they told me tonight he is petitioning to have his title shortened. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he's a distinguished scientist with a long involvement with NASA. He was one of the leaders of the orbiting uh, carbon observatory and was PI of uh, an instrument that was to have been deployed on ESA, uh, ESA's Ex ExoMars program. So he has a lot of experience uh, on the Earth science uh, side of uh, NASA. So to start the discussion, what we're going to do, so it's a little bit like a presidential debate in the sense that the uh, panelists know the topic, but they have not seen the questions. And the questions were developed in large part just with advice from myself and George Hulu, but really led by Eric and his, his group. And uh, the way the format will go is I'll ask a question and uh, ask the panelists to take about five minutes to respond. And then based on those responses, we have a second round of questions prepared, which we may throw out the window if something interesting comes up, or we may proceed, we'll see. Uh, but, but let's get things going. So 
as I've said, we want to investigate ways in which the commercialization of International Space Station cargo and crew launches and space tourism could change uh, space science in this country. And one of the possibilities is that launch costs could be dramatically reduced, making access to space uh, significantly cheaper. So let's start with a question from our um, industry people. Uh, so starting with Gwen, uh, the commercial launch market has largely gone abroad uh, due to companies like Ariane Spas, and there's very many complicated reasons for this, including uh, government control of launch facilities and, and other things. How likely is it that the heavily NASA-subsidized entry of SpaceX uh, into the market is going to change this? Um, do you see the kind of high-volume market emerging that's really going to bring costs way down? And if so, what's the market, and, and how do you see that playing out? Appreciate uh, the question and the opportunity to be here uh, and answer folks' questions in the audience. Um, I see the investment in SpaceX is very different from a subsidy. Um, NASA had provided uh, just under $400 million of um, almost seed capital uh, to develop two capabilities, the Falcon 9 launch vehicle, which is finally competitive in the international marketplace compared to other U.S. launch vehicles, um, as well as the Dragon capsule, uh, which uh, berthed successfully with the International Space Station, and we transferred cargo twice this year. So for about $400 million, just slightly less, the U.S. Uh, recaptured uh, a piece of the uh, commercial market share, as well as enabled the opportunity to service that precious resource that we have, the International Space Station. Um, so I don't call it a subsidy. Um, I call it investment, actually, and I think it was probably one of the best investments the U.S. government has ever done uh, uh, when it comes to the, the space arena. So let's talk about what that means for commercialization of launch. I, I believe that was your question. Um, SpaceX last year uh, received, we won, competed in one, nine launch contracts. It was the most of any launch provider um, for, commercial, for commercial launch, which is quite a great record. As a matter of fact, in every competed uh, mission that the Falcon 9 could actually throw the capacity we won, which is really a testament to the partnership, the strength of the partnership between NASA and SpaceX. Uh, U.S. used to dominate launch uh, in the 80s and the 90s, commercial launch. And we lost that due to the uh, extraordinary increase in prices. Uh, domestic launch vehicles became uncompetitive in the international market. And uh, I think that partnership between NASA and SpaceX really paid off, obviously. Uh, like I said, we won every competed mission in the Falcon 9 class. And uh, our manifest is over 50 missions. So uh, it was a good start. OK, great. Uh so for uh, Steve, the question is, specifically, how do you see the emerging space tourism industry, and in particular, the technologies and capabilities being developed by Virgin Galactic, changing the cost of, of science payload launches? And a sort of somewhat related but separate question, does Virgin Galactic have any specific aspirations in the area of space science? First of all, Fiona, thank you, the Keck Institute. Certainly good to see Tom Prince again. And uh, I will say Eric writes some tremendously enthusiastic and passionate emails that made it very easy to say yes. So <laughs> it's, it's really my pleasure to be here. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm lucky in that I think I have uh, one of the coolest and fun jobs uh, right now that, that's out there. And it's really being driven by the belief on a simple question that I could just post to the audience is, how many people, raise your hand, would like to go to space someday? Okay. Well, that was an easy one. This is the right audience to ask that question. <laughs> but, but I will say, just about any, any audience I go to and ask that question, you see, you see all the hands go up. Um, I'm lucky to be working with a guy, uh, Richard Branson, who you know has been very successful in the corporate world. But he, he believes that beyond just making uh, profit in dollars and cents, that there, there are markets out there that um, that aspire and and uh, really reach the, the human soul. And he he views that opening up the space frontier that anybody who wants to go is is the next right step. Um, so at Virgin Galactic. We're not looking to create new technologies. Um, in fact, we're trying to be as conservative as we can. But we are trying to open up a new frontier that makes it accessible to anybody that wants to go. The challenge for us is making sure that we have the kind of economics that really can open it up and we have the kind of routine, safe access you know, that makes it possible. So the, the approach we're taking is you know, we're not shooting for the moon and Mars right off the bat. We're going for uh, suborbital launches. We think the technologies are in hand in such a way that it could be affordable, um, still not cheap. Uh, any new product that's ever brought to the market never starts off as cheap. But as, as a first entry, uh, we, we hope that it'll come down over time, and we expect it will. Um, but relative to going all the way to orbit, uh, today, if you want to go to space, uh, you know, you can go talk to the Russians, and you know, they'll, they'll give you a, a, a flight for you know, $60 million. Uh, and, you know, we believe that for 300 times less than that, you know, we can give people an opportunity to go into space. And um, we think once that frontier is opened up, we hope other people will join in, in a competitive race to bring down the cost and really open it up to anybody who wants to go. And then over time, who knows where we go from there. Okay. Uh, so let's now go to, uh, to John and, and ask... You know, there's a lot of promise here. Uh, as we heard from Gwen, we're regaining some of the commercial market. There's hope that uh, that launch costs could come down. We even had enthusiastic colleagues of yours say, uh, you know, that it'll be so cheap you can pay to launch your iPhone into orbit. Um, so, but we've heard these sorts of things in the past, and. Uh, each launch system overhaul promises to be cheaper uh, than previous paradigm. And so far, you know, it, it's been difficult to live up to this promise. And the question is, do you see the current situation as being more likely to work uh, and substantially improve access to space? These new, uh, the new tourism industry and, and the emergence of companies like SpaceX? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I should say more. Uh, okay. Those of you that are old, like I am old, might remember back in the 50s that atomic energy was going to produce electrical power so inexpensively that you didn't need to meter it. Uh, that didn't happen. So... Uh, you know, are, are we going to have access to space at airline prices, Southwest airline prices? <laughs> Probably not anytime soon. Uh, the technological requirements to uh, overcome the Earth's gravity field are just too great to do it in, in, a, in a simple routine way. 
but we are breaking the paradigm of, uh, I mean, after all, most of our existing launch vehicles that we've used over the past 55 years, I guess, first U.S. launch was January 31st, 1958, were really derived uh, uh, intermediate-range ballistic missiles or ICBMs. Uh, and, and so they were adapted for space use, or in the case of von Braun's uh, Saturn vehicles, dedicated as government programs to space use. So really it is now that we are starting with SpaceX, with orbital sciences, uh, for orbital flight with Virgin Galactic and XCOR and uh, the other country, uh, uh, companies for suborbital flight to have private investment be the driving force in creating a new capability. And that brings a whole set of motivations in, uh, profit, uh, return on investment, that were never there before. So I would say right now it's an experiment to see whether the partnership between the government and the private sector, with the private sector taking on a greater role in initial investment and in uh, the design and, and development of, of capabilities, really will lower the cost, open access uh, to a greater uh, 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 range of, of opportunities. I've, most of the people, because they've been listening to me at dinner, know I've spent the past four days down at the Nixon Library uh, doing research on a book that's intended to look out how we got from Apollo to shuttle. Shuttle was going to revolutionize space by routinizing it. Well, that didn't work either. Uh, so here we are at another experiment. I think all the indications in these first few years of the experiment are pretty positive. But we'll see. Okay, great. Thanks. So we've sort of talked about, um, you know, reducing the cost uh, of launch vehicles and how promising this is. Let's turn now to talk about the science payloads, because this is, after all, trying to investigate what the impact will be on science. And let's just suppose that launch costs come down tenfold. It's a dream. Um, what impact would this actually have? And so I want to start with uh, John Grunsfeld and uh, ask that if launch costs were to drop considerably, the overall cost of a space science mission is still by and large the payload and operations. Uh, that's true even for the smallest missions. My own mission is, is the small-scale astrophysics mission, and there the launch cost and you know, launch qualification was about 25% of the total mission cost. So to benefit from uh, launch opportunities, you know, in a significant way, uh, one has to bring down the payload costs. And the question is, that probably means accepting more risk. And is this something that you see NASA being able to do? So the, the largest inflationary component of our science portfolio has been the launch costs. And in particular... Uh, you know, due to not only uh, launch cost but launch availability. So the workhorse of the science program in these uh, smaller missions has been, for instance, the Delta II vehicle, which basically, you know, went out of existence. Now, we've been able to cobble a few together 
with spare parts. Um, but in that class, which is the kind of things that we launch in uh, you know, high-energy physics and astronomy, uh, we've been forced into the much larger rockets like the Atlas V and Delta IVs, although we don't really use the Delta IVs, they're too expensive. But in the Atlas Vs, very capable rockets. And I think in, in the perspective of the discussion we were having, you know, those rockets were born out of a program the Air Force started uh, for government uh, services to provide launches of, of, of mostly DOD and military payloads. And the metric was uh, to have a competitive environment, two manufacturers competing to build rockets and the lowest possible launch cost. Uh, and because of the, the launch industry and, and such, there was a consolidation that eliminated the competition. So those two are now being built by the same company. And, and, and by many metrics, they're the most successful rockets that have ever been built. Um, they were built to requirements uh, with a lot of government oversight, uh, and that's what we're launching on. But they're very expensive. Um, the scientific community needs to have missions on timescales that are comparable to uh, professional lifetimes, to graduate student lifetimes. Uh, you know, these are important human issues. Uh, you know, I grew up, like uh, many Tom Prince who introduced us, building balloon payloads. Uh, and at the time, you know, a graduate student could, uh, you know, working with a thesis advisor, come up with an idea, uh, build a payload, and, and Fiona as well. Uh, build it, launch it, get the data back, get the payload back, hopefully, in, in many cases, uh, and, and then get a, a doctorate out of that. And that life cycle experience of conceive, design, build, operate, you know, analyze and get science out is, is one of the critical life cycles of a scientist that's allowed us to have such an enormously successful scientific enterprise. If the, uh, the frequency of missions is so long, or the, dis the, the time frame between missions is so long, uh, that you break that cycle. It's very hard to have a, a successful scientific enterprise. Um, you know, Vannevar Bush in the famous, uh, you know, 1945 um, Science, the Endless Frontier said you have to have continuous uh, and steady progress in science to really provide the value to the nation. Uh, and so I think one of the, the biggest features of having a more competitive environment, having some smaller entrants, uh, is the ability for uh, us to, to try riskier missions at a higher frequency. And so that even if you have some failures, uh, you know, the end cost is still perhaps lower than what it would be to have much more expensive uh, missions at, at, at longer intervals. But there's another component that I think is very important. Uh, you know, we're thinking about s missions like New Star, perhaps, which has been extraordinarily successful so far. Uh, that's a space science mission. That's uh, astrophysics, what, what I also do. But we also have heliophysics and earth science. Uh, and in those areas in particular, there's the potential, uh, for instance, heliophysics, trying to understand the connection between the sun and the earth, where you may be able to have a large number of small satellites that would be uh, particularly powerful in characterizing how the, uh, the sun influences the earth's magnetic field and then influences things on Earth, like the power grids and airlines and pipelines, things that are very important to us economically. Uh, we can only afford to put a few satellites and sample a little bit of that. If you could put hundreds of satellites, much smaller, uh, it would transform our ability to understand uh, that connection. And our current systems are not amenable to doing that, but you might be able to. Um, you know, Steve Isaacwitz came to me a few months ago and mentioned, oh, in the process of uh, designing the spaceship two in operations, 
somebody came up with a clever idea that you could use you know, the essential core propulsion stage to launch small payloads. And it's a few years off. Uh, I think you said 2015, 2016. Um, but that's really sparked a lot of interest in the ability to get, you know, for a much lower launch cost, smaller payloads into orbit. And so I think the, the suborbital tourism market has potentially driven an emergent technology uh, that could be very powerful for science. And I think that's the, uh, you know, the key. You know, technology for technology's sake rarely ends up being all that useful. But if you have a need, which are these smaller payloads, and you match it with a technology, you know, then you get true innovation. Um, and, uh, and of course, we're very excited, and that's why NASA's jumped on board, uh, you know, with uh, commitments for the Falcon 9. And, you know, I think at the moment, that's the only on entry we have, um, and soon maybe some Antares orbital sciences drive, for these smaller payloads. Okay. Well, that was actually a great lead-in to what I wanted to ask Paul, because Paul, being an Earth scientist, um, and you mentioned Earth science as, as one possible area where small payloads uh, may make a big difference. Um, what opportunities do you see in Earth science to take advantage of inexpensive launches? Um, you know, usually scientists want the next best sensors that are expensive and the biggest telescopes. You know, maybe you can describe some of the opportunities that, that you might see, if there are any, for the kinds of things John was talking about, small payloads uh, that, that might have a big impact on Earth science? I think the, um, one of the real challenges uh, terrestrial science has had is that NASA has built some fantastic sensors and done really interesting science. But the big, one of the big challenges we have in Earth science, of course, is understanding the changing Earth how climate is changing, how other aspects of the, of the Earth system are, are being altered. And these require relatively long-term records. This has been one of the real um, failures of national space policy, in my view, which is that NASA, being an, the innovative agency, has, has invested large amounts of money in, in beautiful sensors. And they have, many of them have become one-off uh, projects where we fly the next best... Uh, radiometric sensor or a cloud sensor. And yet, from the science point of view, what's, what's really required are some long-term monitoring, something that NASA has not, um, is not part of NASA's real mission. On the other hand, NOAA, uh, which one might think would pick up a lot of these uh, projects, has, has uh, it's been, it's been uh, not as successful as one would have hoped. And I think some of the, these, these new opportunities for cheap launches, if we can keep the scientists' uh, appetite um, constrained so that we rebuild sensors and fly them periodically to monitor um, the cryosphere, the atmosphere, the oceans. Uh, it, it may real, uh, really open up opportunities that we don't have right now to maintain those, those long-term records. The other aspect that I think um, may be revolutionized truly by, by these type of approaches is um, I do not really get my students involved um, in space sensor development and in anything having to do with the engineering aspects. And that's just because of, as you mentioned, these are very long-time projects. They, the, the time between you, when you start thinking about something like OCO, we, we wrote the proposal for OCO, I think, in 2001. It's supposed to launch in a year and a half. Um, and this is just not a time scale that's consistent with, with uh, student work. 
However, one could imagine if we have cheap, inexpensive ways to get to space, we could really begin again to, um, to bring back onto campus uh, a lot of engineering and interesting applications for, for earth science. So I think that's another area where there may be real opportunities. Okay. Well, if I can jump yeah. in on that. Uh, Go ahead. Because I, you know, I think the NASA-NOAA uh, comparison is really important, which is uh, as, a, as a government agency, um, and NASA in particular is charged with the earth science and, and understanding the climate, so climate is a part of it, but we're not charged with the long-term measurements, just as you've said. That is the purview of NOAA, and NOAA is often pushed very much into the more near-term you know, storm forecasting, hurricane forecasting, coastal programs. And, you know, so just the way the government is set up. So, you know, that's code for saying uh, that for large government organizations like NASA that I work for, that's uh, part of the administration, and NOAA, uh, part of the Department of Commerce, you were not immune from politics. And so if you're trying to come up with requirements for a program, uh, you know, it can get uh, affected by politics. And just for the for the audience, OCO is Orbiting Carbon Observatory. Um, and so this, you know, this is a very uh, important topic right now. Uh, and in particular, what, what you said about the timescales, you know, what we're finding is, uh, you know, that it is possible to understand the Earth as a system. And, you know, for the students out there, it's, you know, a system of coupled differential equations. And if you know the boundary conditions, you can solve them. And, you know, so what's the big deal? Well. <laughs> The big deal is it's a little bit harder than that uh, because we don't understand all of the mechanisms. Um, that's what we're trying to learn from the science component. But more importantly, the boundary conditions are changing faster than we can learn the physics and understand the <coughs> phenomena. And that makes it not a tractable problem, um, especially if the, the system is changing on scales of a decade and it takes a decade to build a mission and start your baseline. And so the opportunity to have faster turnaround you know, could really change that. We have an airborne program where we use airplanes, uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of folks uh, here at Caltech and JPL work on those programs, and that's been very successful in seeing things that turn on much faster, uh, that change on much faster timescales. Okay, great. So um, I actually want to push a little more on this idea of accepting more risk, because um, I just some background, the mission that, that I was PI of was called Enhanced Class D. Nobody seemed to know exactly what that meant. Not Class A, not Class B, but it means accept some risk. And you realize NASA's very willing to accept some risk until you get close to launch, in which case everybody's a Class A payload. <laughs> so there is some inertia uh, in the system, and we've gone, we went through a period in the 90s when NASA tried to accept more risk, and there were failures, and then things kind of moved back. So, so just to sort of investigate this a little more, I think John might agree that if the Mars Science Lander had not worked, there might not have been another one. Um, that's, that's one question. And uh, the other, so how do you see uh, NASA getting the, you know, its, itself, politicians and the public, to accept a realistic risk of failure? So this is actually a discussion uh, rolling back a few years that, that Steve and myself and uh, Administrator Sean O'Keefe uh, had, and it was in reference to the Hubble Space Telescope. And, you know, the Hubble Space Telescope is really the star of uh, NASA's portfolio. 
Um, I describe it as the most productive scientific instrument ever created by humans. Of course, I have a little bit of ownership. I actually wear Hubble over my heart, um, <laughs> literally, uh, and have been described as a Hubble hugger, and all of that's true. Um, but it, it has really been uh, phenomenal that, uh, you know, what, what Hubble has done. But it was very expensive. Uh, and so in the sense of, you know, these classes, we categorize things in classes. And so Hubble has a lot of redundancy, and we paid for that redundancy uh, in terms of, you know, if a gyro failed, well, we have a spare. If a, uh, a radio failed, we have a spare. You know, computers, and we can cross-strap, meaning there's different systems and very complicated. And after uh, the loss of Columbia, uh, NASA made a determination, the administrator, actually, as the NASA chief risk officer, made the determination that it was too risky to go back to Hubble. And that was a combination of things, one of which is we had just lost a space shuttle, and so he was considering the crew, you know, that it was a lot of risk to the crew because on, uh, on Columbia, it was a mission that had no ability to dock with the space station where the crew could hang out and be rescued, and Hubble was the same, whereas our station missions, if you discovered a problem that was, you know, related to the inability to reenter, you could in principle save the crew. Uh, but also... You know, we would be taking the risk to service a Hubble Space Telescope, and if it failed, if you lost a crew, you're taking a programmatic risk to the entire NASA program. And so these are diff that's sort of at the large risk. Those are the obvious risks um, that we take. Um, I think the national consensus on that was, uh, and, and, and I agree with that, that in fact, yes, it's risky, but there's some things that, where it's worth taking the risk. And just to give you a perspective... You know, the, the best NASA analysis showed that, you know, the risk of losing the crew on the Hubble mission, and I was on that mission, was about 1 in 62 or so, 1 in 65. And so you ask, is that, you know, is that worth it? Well, it's not just, you know, that's a discussion that I had to have with my family and my crewmates, whether I thought that was worth the risk. And clearly, you know, I did think it was worth the risk because I really care about Hubble. Um, and... You know, I, th I think it's an important program. But as that's a risk-taker's view, then there's the risk-manager's view. And so NASA had to get comfortable with that risk that if we lost the shuttle on the Hubble mission, it probably would shut down the human spaceflight program for quite a long time. So that's the overall wrapper. So then we get to, you know, the smaller missions and how do we decide. And I think we s all of the missions we select, we select because we think they're important. And so, you know, we then try and say, well, what cost category is it in? And how can we, we take the risk? Um, but again, you know, the public gets to vote. And there's not a lot of, uh, you know, discerning ability of the, the public to see the difference between a Mars rover that might cost $2.5 billion and a new star telescope that might cost, you know, around $100 million, that when it fails, it's still a stupid NASA failure. Uh, and, th and that's just the, the world we have to live in. I think one of the, you know, the, the great things about having the commercial sector in, involved is that it's not taxpayer dollars, although it's certainly, uh, you know, a NASA investment in, in SpaceX. But, you know, Steve's company is taking on that risk themselves. Uh, and we just had an event where uh, a fellow jumped out of a high-altitude balloon sponsored by Red Bull, you know, no, no NASA investment or connection. Uh, and I think people really then appreciated the risk there. They thought that was part of the event, and indeed it was. Um, so I think there's a, uh, a process by which, the, you know, the whole country has to be on board with that risk-taking. 
Um, just from a cost to return perspective, you know, this is something I'm very supportive of, is that at this lower level, which we call Class D, I think we should be taking more risk, but also having more opportunities. And they go together, because if you just take more risk, there's the chance that if you fail on a mission that nobody will let you try that again. Because we do have this congressional oversight, we have Office of Management and Budget oversight, uh, and of course then the public. Uh, and, the, and the private sector is free to take those risks, and I think it, it's a very different equation. But in the public sector, taxpayer dollars, uh, that's a different thing. So I think if we can match the lower cost so that we have more opportunities and we articulate that, hey, we're taking some risks, some will fail. Uh, DARPA certainly has been successful. The Defense Advanced Projects Agency has been successful. And they consider if one out of ten missions succeeds, they're being successful, or some number approximately like that. Hmm. You know, we're 10 out of 10 have to succeed, even if it's one of these riskier missions. Right. I think we have to get away from that. Yeah, so um, why don't we hear from Steve then on the, sort of the same subject? I mean, you've had a long uh, history dealing with, with these issues. Um, so do you think that it's possible to get people, the government and the public, to accept uh, yeah, higher so failure rates? I give John a lot of credit because he did mention that four-letter word, risk. Uh, and, and I actually think that is probably the most important issue actually to be dealt with to truly open it up on, on the government side. Um, I'll start off with an, an anecdote. Um, a number of years ago, uh, I worked for a guy. His name was uh, Liam Panetta. At that time, he was a director of OMB, and today he's, you know, Secretary of Defense. Uh, at that time, um, it was right after we had the uh, Mars Observer failure, and we, we were a point, at a set point in the space science program that we, we literally were, at that point I was working at the OMB, which is responsible for the president's budget. And, you know, once a year we go to the director of OMB with sort of big decisions on where we want to go with the, with the next year's budget. And, and literally, as we looked through NASA's budget, this is early in the, in the 1990s, the manifest was literally empty. And I'm not doing that to be dramatic. I mean, it was literally, whether it was astrophysics, planetary, there, there was nothing to show. We had the Mars Observer failure, and so some people thought, Game over. You know, we're done. Um, what I found particularly interesting is there was a, a NASA administrator at the time, Dan Golden, who sort of came uh, up with a diff totally different paradigm. Um, he came forward with a proposal that said, instead of betting everything on one mission, I take all my dollars and put it on one mission, guess what? Failure is not an option. Because, you know, if you lose that, then, then you're down and out. And when failure becomes not an option, you've got to make sure it succeeds. Everybody realizes that's the last train out of town, so everyone's got to get their payload on it. And, and before you know it, your half-billion-dollar mission becomes a one, a four, and you know, it just kind of spirals out, and whatever other things that were going out are, are going to get LO'd out. Uh, Dan Golden at that time came up with an idea of the sort of better, faster, cheaper. And I remember making the presentation to uh, Leon Panetta that we were showing them for some pretty big-class missions we could have a totally different architecture, particularly in the case of exploring Mars, that we can go to Mars every two years. Um, and, you know, we'd give one or two payloads, you know. Uh, we'd have some um, key payloads or the ones that you know, everyone was paying attention to, and, you know, and then we'd have some sort of high-technology, high-risk payloads that were, were going as well. Uh, the virtue of that architecture, which I was a big fan of when I, when I presented to him, was um, even if you had a failure, you had a portfolio of activity. So, so literally... I mean, if, even if Congress wanted to beat somebody up, it, it was kind of like too late because we already had, you know, one or two other payloads, you know, on their, on their way to Mars, as opposed to you lose a payload and you're, you're out for five or six years. Um, I remember making the presentation to Leon Panetta, and he loved it. I mean, he just 
he, he loved it so much that actually he wanted to go to the other extreme. He said, why can't we take everything we do in space science and just make them all of these, these smaller payloads? Well, you can't because, again, sometimes the, the physics require that you've got to have some bigger payload. So it really boiled down to having a portfolio of activity where you do have some bigger stuff, which is true. They, 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 you know, failure is less of an option. But you have to have some of the smaller payloads. You have to have the ones that you can insert uh, new technologies. Uh, you have to have opportunities for competition. Um, I remember a program that came out, I think, right after that. Charles would tell me if I'm wrong, but I think it was the Discovery Program, which I was a huge fan of, you know, where we set a cap, opened it up, just said, this is the dollar amount, the best science, made the best science win. Well, I, I just remember being completely floored at the amount of innovation that was coming in under that, I, you know, and it was from your traditional players, and what I loved about it, it was a lot of sort of non-traditional players. Um, not non-traditional in terms of principal investigators, but non-traditional in terms of principal investigators who had these great ideas who went through some, you know, organizations who had not played in it traditionally. And suddenly it became extremely exciting again, um, and we did some tremendous thing in the 90s, and it's, you know, it's carried uh, forward to this day. Uh, so I think the challenge to us is to, to somehow get back to that, you know, get back to sort of this portfolio approach. Um, you do have to spend time with the Congress to explain that, you know, frankly, failure is an option. Um, but as long as you, you're showing the, the rate of success is way out, uh, uh, well ahead of anything you're going to have in terms of failures, um, I, I think you can do it. I, I should add one other thing. What I've, what I've said, also, you, you've got to be more careful on the human side, okay? Because on the human side, it's, you know, it's, you can't say eight out of ten, but those eight were tremendous in the other two. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, on, on, yeah. on the human side, it's, you know, John raises some really good points. Uh, you still can take some risk, but it's sort of a, a different type of risk. Um, it's, um, if, if, you, if you fail, it's because, you know, you've, you've really pushed it out to the frontier. But, you know, failure because of for craftsmanship or something, you know, is less of an option. Um, great. Well, that's actually the perfect lead-in to the question I was going to ask John Logsdon, which is, um, what happens if an early manned commercial launch fails? Uh, so, I ask <laughs> well, uh, I will ask what, her what, uh, after I hear what you. Yeah, what, it, it's a really tricky question. Uh, I think that, I mean, the, the, it was announced yesterday that the in, initial commercial crew launches will have company astronauts aboard, not government employees, not NASA astronauts. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, and, and, and so they're kind of the paradigm of test pilots. Test pilots expected to fail uh, at some portion of the time. That's what, because they're pushing limits. Will the public accept the notion of, of an early failure uh, on either test flights or early uh, NASA-procured flights of, of, uh, of Dragon or, or of CST-100 or, or Dream Chaser, it's going to take a lot of education, I think, uh, to, to uh, make people understand where these flights are in the kind of con continuum of getting into a regular, it's never going to be routine, but regular service. Uh, uh, and and, and it, it, I think it's extremely important over the next few years that, that there be uh, a, a community of people that communicate uh, that this is new, these are new systems, 
Um, I think what Boeing is thinking about the 787 these days, uh, you know, with all the problems it's having. Um, mm-hmm. Loss of life. I mean, one of the great things about uh, the systems are being developed now is that they have escape systems where the shuttle never did. Uh, and, and so, you know, when Grunsfeld got aboard the shuttle, he was really committing and you're going to more or less get to orbit or not. Uh, uh, we're much more conscious of safety now, uh, having had two horrible accidents. Uh, so I, it's right on the edge, I think, of, of, of uh, what would happen if, if one of the early flights uh, had a loss of crew failure. I mean, a, loss, a loss of mission failure, I think, would be understandable and acceptable. Loss of crew, a really tricky political issue, I think. Okay, well, let, let me ask Gwen the same question then with a little bit different spin, which is, I mean, you know, your SpaceX must have considered this in, in entering this market, and we've even heard of talk of going to Mars. What, what's your view on the, um, you know, how uh, the industry views this risk of entering the, the human space uh, arena? Well, I'm pretty sure that every individual that's working uh, on any crewed uh, program has uh, kind of a million different perspectives on this. Um, first and foremost is no one ever wants to lose a life. I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's just the fundamental. Um, second of all, I think each of uh, the commercial crew companies are hoping and praying that the other doesn't do something flippant and stupid uh, that would... Uh, really cast a doubt upon uh, the need to pursue this. Um, But fundamentally, this is an extremely risky business, um, and so you need to ensure that you develop your architecture such that it is risk tolerant. Uh, I think our last flight uh, to the International Space Station was a great example of of this. Um, Saturn I and Saturn V each had a mission where they had a loss of engine, which, by the way, is the primary cause of failure for space missions. It's a propulsion issue. So all you bad propulsion people out there, including my (laughs) husband. um, uh, No, that is the primary cause of failure in launch. Um, So we designed a system that is tolerant to failure uh, in propulsion. You have redundancy in propulsion. Um, And hopefully, and and I don't even believe, I mean, NASA is mandating Uh, redundancy in systems wherever possible. Um, So fundamental, no one wants to lose a life. It would be horrible personally, it would be horrible professionally, and it would be pretty difficult for the industry to pick up after that. It would pick up after that, let's be clear about that, but it would be very difficult. Um, Second of all, think very hard about the the safety systems that you have on board. Make systems redundant. Um, and robust. I think that's critically important, and that's been demonstrated on Saturn 1, Saturn 5, and Falcon 9. Um, I do think it's critically important to, to talk about risk, not in terms of dollars expended, um, but in terms of how smart you are in defining your, and executing your architecture. Um, I'm pretty sure that everyone that owns a Ferrari understands that it is a far less reliable vehicle than the Honda. Um, it's also a far more expensive vehicle than the Honda that, uh, that folks drive. So I really hope the conversation gets away from ensuring reliability through enhanced payments to folks, because that's not what it's about. It's about thinking very hard about the things that go wrong. 
architecting your system to ensure that you've avoided those things to the maximum extent possible. And then you put a really robust safety system on top of that, and John nailed it. You basically have an escape system on these, uh, on these vehicles, which unfortunately the shuttle did not have. Um, but, uh, but all the ones that I'm aware of going forward have that, have that system. So did I, I, I'm not sure I answered your you question did. fully. You did, no, that, that was, that was it, very informative, a, actually. Another comment yeah, to it. Yeah, uh, Over, since the commercial crew idea was introduced in, in February of 2010, so we're coming up on three years since the program started, there's been this sense that somehow inherently doing it commercially, whatever that meant, with new entrants in particular, was inherently more risky than if NASA did it. Look at NASA's record with human spaceflight. Uh, you know, and uh, you, two two losses out of 135 is not a particularly outstanding record. Uh, that 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 while NASA lost a crew in Challenger, lost a crew in Columbia, but went forward, these folks are betting the company on success. Uh, and they have all the incentives uh, to, to minimize risk. Uh, I would say even more incentives than a government organization does. So the, the criticism of the old-time NASA folks led by uh, some of the hero astronauts, uh, I found very uh, retro-thinking. Uh, and... and uh, uh, so, I, th I think that attempts by new entrants to enter this market might even lower risk, not increase it. That's an interesting uh, point. That's a very, it's a very interesting point. And I'm just going to, you know, I'm not going to defend uh, the Challenger and, and Columbia accidents, although I will defend the shuttle's record. I mean, it's the most phenomenal machine, you know, we've ever built. It's wonderful most machine. And, and capable. Um, and, and in fact, you know, I mean, you were... You know, very much involved, but the, uh, you know, the failures were not failures of the machine or the technology. And so I, I absolutely agree with Gwen. It's not necessarily the money you spend and you know how you design the systems, but it's it's the in, in many senses the experience and the knowledge and the human behavior in managing those systems. Uh, you know that caused the failures where we lost Challenger and 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 Columbia, and, and that's something that's learned behavior. And so, you know, I think the, the best example and what gives me the most hope uh, in going forward with the commercial space flight is, and it was, uh, you know, exhibited, you know, very well in this last cargo mission to the space station, is that when the Dragon was very close to the space station, you know, there were some major issues. And as a team, you know, NASA was able to leverage its experience working with the SpaceX folks to resolve them, and we, we pushed into a grapple. And I think it's that partnership. And yeah. Gwen talked about the investment. I think that's what, you know, that partnership that will allow the commercial companies, you know, to grow into these difficult roles. Because as you said, John, you know, it's never going to be routine. There's too much energy involved and, and in some cases complexity. Uh, and so I think this is a really interesting era and one that if we work as partners, uh, you know, we'll be very successful. In fact, if I could just add to that, having been now in the public and the private side, um, I think actually the government's record is incredibly excellent given how difficult it is to be excellent in the government. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Picking up on John's point, Columbia accident, you and I were there at the same time. Um, it was a really terrible time after the Columbia accident, but one of the things that was just really interesting to watch is because the blame game gets underway, um, literally I felt for a while there we would never return to flight. That, that, that it, it, it's a system that's sort of highly incentivized so that managers are, it's very difficult for them to make decisions because they have nothing to gain if they get it right and they got everything to lose, including humiliation in the newspaper, going before the Congress, and, and the blame game begins. And I remember after the Columbia accident, anybody who wanted to say, I have a hunch on what might be wrong, it had to be investigated because there was no manager who was going to say, no, I think that would be a waste of time. So it, it, actually we were getting to a point where uh, more things were being broken as a result of opening things up and testing it and so on. Costs were going up. We were actually creating more problems than we were fixing. Um, I really felt we would, we would never return to flight. The nice thing about being on the industry side is you don't feel like every moment there's the Congress and the GAO and the IG and all these other entities that are telling you after as Monday morning, uh, Monday morning quarterbacks will do how you got it totally wrong. So, I mean, I give a lot of credit for NASA, what they've been able to do. Um, I think the thing that NASA has learned over the years is how to get it right to the extent that that knowledge can be shared with industry um, and help us grow to make sure we get it right. Um, I think the combination of the industry being more sort of streamlined and focused and NASA being very knowledgeable is actually, I think, as John points out, a very um, formidable uh, partnership. Oh, that's a good point. One very quick anecdote. Since I was on the board that investigated the Columbia accident, when we outlined our report, it was from the get-go, what are the things required to return to flight? There was never a debate of grounding the shuttle. Mm. Mm. So um, just to wrap up the prepared questions, uh, I'm going to move a little bit away from this question of risk and accepting failure uh, on the government side to talk about perhaps uh, the idea that um, the foundations might get involved in space if the costs were low enough. And so uh, here at Caltech, we have you know, large investments in ground-based telescopes and things that have largely been privately funded, but that uh, foundations are obviously hesitant to uh, fund something that, you know, costs a lot of money and might fail. So I've had some passing conversations with Paul about this, and he's thought about it a little bit, and I'd like to ask him to share his thoughts on whether, do you think that uh, foundations might fund space science if launch costs were low enough and, and there was an attractive opportunity? I never asked. So um, we, we, did, we did start to think what would it cost to do a private orbiter around Mars. Just put down the numbers and sort of think about if you add the, the new launch vehicle co possibilities and so forth. And you, you come up with numbers um, for an orbiter around Mars just to send a toaster, to send nothing but something that would maybe say I'm still here. Uh, in the neighborhood of two to three to four hundred million, depending on how much risk you're willing to accept. So it's a large amount of money. And, um, and foundations, um, certainly there are some foundations that would have such kind of resources. But I think it's still, it's still a, uh, it's still a, 
I, I would I'd be quite surprised um, that that would happen soon. It uh, it gets back to the question of risk as well. Um, if uh, if a, if a Keck wants to build a telescope in in Hawaii, they have cost risk. The thing may end up costing more than they thought, and they may have to invest a little more. But you know pretty well that that's going to go to fruition, and there's going to be a lovely set of data that come back from that. I think when we think about these, just what we were talking about earlier, the, the, the launch risks, and plus, the, um, particularly if you're going to try to do something inexpensive, I think that that would uh, put off a lot of uh, possible interest from foundation money. But maybe I'm just just being too pessimistic. Um, and um, I think uh, if I could just add to this whole question about risk, because it's a, it's a really interesting one that, um, that I've thought about in the context of, of some of the programs I worked on. So many of you know the Orbiting Carbon Observatory actually did launch a few years ago and failed to make it to orbit, not because of propulsion, but because of the, the fairing, uh, a problem with the fairing coming off. And in some ways, we were, we were incredibly lucky. It happened just before the economic uh, downturn. And um, the, there was a, essentially an insurance policy. Um, not quite that, but close. We had the fact that the government decided they needed to spend a lot of money fast on so-called shovel-ready projects. And we could put our hands up and say, hey, we're ready to spend some of your money and to do something I think that's really important for the country and interesting. And, so the, the, you know, NASA was able to make the case and, and, and put forward the resources. I think that leads to the second point that I would have is I think if we're going to accept more risk and if um, we need some sort of insurance, um, we need some mechanism that would um, allow those of us who make large investments of our time and uh, scientists, it's great if you say, well, okay, one in ten is going to fail, but if that's, if it's your mission that's the the one that fails, it's, it's, can be a, in, it's an incredible uh, loss uh, for the students and the, the scientists and everyone else who's invested a large fraction of their careers trying to develop something. And I, I wonder if within that context of, of uh, Class D accepting more risk, if there wouldn't be some, some mechanism within the NASA budget to, to, um, to essentially do what we do in the private industry when we're dealing with risk, which is to, to do insurance. Um, well, Steve or John, do you want to answer that quickly before we uh, wrap up? I mean, it's a tricky question because the government doesn't buy insurance. Uh, it's self-insurers. But what does that really mean when your budgets aren't fixed, you know? Well, if far. I can go back to the original question, I guess I take a different act. Um, uh, I, I do believe there are opportunities. I mean, uh, you know, at, at one end of the extreme end of the spectrum, if you look at things like CubeSats and so on, you get these really small things. You know, there's actually a fair amount of innovation that's taking place. And whether they fly as secondary payloads or, as John mentioned, you know, we're trying to enter the business with a, a low-cost, a small launch vehicle. But, but whatever means they have to get into space, there, there's a lot of innovation that's taking place. And these are not 10-year class payloads. Now, I, I, granted, they're not going to win Nobel Prizes with this. But I think it's great, particularly someone that's early in their career. I think it is a chance to fly and, and get the, you know, the experience of space. I think it also starts to get at what I think is critical to actually see innovation, which is reducing the cycle time, giving more opportunities to fly, um, getting production rates up so that the next person who wants to buy unit number 11 of that bus uh, can take advantage of that. 
the one thing that's frankly just sort of frustrated me, uh, particularly on the on the launch side, but you know, I guess space in general, is why is it we're like one of the few industries that doesn't have a Moore's law? We've just been sort of stuck in this conundrum of where prices either either the same or are going up. I, I think what's really interesting, and why I appreciate you've done this panel tonight, is I think for the first time we actually have a chance to break through that. I think through the stuff that SpaceX is doing and, and, and others such as ourselves are trying to do, we're trying to change that. It's a step at a time. Um, I think there's nothing inherently that says a payload has to be a billion dollars if it's flying in a heavy lift launch vehicle. Um, I think that's we kind of talk ourselves into that. And when I, when I, you know, one of the things I used to do in my old job is I used to do these independent cost analysis. Okay, so someone come in and says it's going to be cheap. I put together a team of, of experts, and they would come in and says, you know, in the last 10 years we've never built a payload that cheap. Therefore, this one's going to be just as expensive. You know something? And it turns out, to, because of that, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. Yet I never found that it had to be that way. I mean. I, I, you know, I sort of challenge the group that's in this audience and others out there is, you know, why can't you build a 50,000-pound spacecraft that's dirt cheap if you can put it on a launch vehicle that's dirt cheap? So, I mean, I, I think there's opportunities to sort of, you know, break through that. I remember uh, when I was at NASA and SpaceX was, was, was launching, what I loved about them is they were always off the curve. Um, and so it was a chance to sort of push back in the experts that says there's not a law of physics here that says it has to be expensive. So if we can get the cost down, whether it's foundations, private enterprise, I think there is opportunity to really open up the field. And I think in the end of the day, that's how NASA is going to do more space science if there are more players coming into it. Okay. Can well, I jump oh, in with just yeah. a couple of things? One, one of which Please. is, um, you know, referring to you know a lot of this, I think there's an intermediate case where you know, as, as Steve said, there may be secondary payloads uh, that would be smaller in scale. So if it's not, you know, if a, a foundation doesn't have to invest, uh, you know, a billion dollars, but they're only having to invest, you know, a few million dollars, and they could be a payload on a Mars mission or a CubeSat uh, as a hosted payload or things like that, a lot of uh, opportunities there. But we are doing the experiment uh, with a group called B612. Now, B612 is the asteroid that the Little Prince lived on. Uh, in, that, in that famous children's book. And this is a mission to, uh, to survey uh, for near-Earth asteroids. And it's a nonprofit company, and we've signed a NASA Space Act agreement with the company to provide support, deep space network tracking, uh, you know, a lot of advice. But they have to raise the money, private money, in order to fund this small telescope uh, and, and advance what is a very important societal goal, which is to... You know, look at near-Earth asteroids and find out if there's anyone threatening, uh, you know, the future of humanity. Uh, so, so it's a good experiment, and and we're very supportive of it, uh, and we'll see how that goes. I think the other aspect of this that I find very interesting, you mentioned uh, the 30-meter telescope, uh, is that the ground-based missions that are truly transformative, the ones that are going to answer some of the fundamental questions in science of, you know, how did the universe, you know, initially uh, get the structure that it has, and, and what is dark energy? Uh, and I think, you know, what drives me is the question of are we alone in the universe? You know, these are very difficult problems that involve very large-scale projects, whether on the ground or in space. And these large ground-based telescopes have gotten to the scale that the cost is comparable to an equivalent space mission. And part of the response to that is we're starting to engineer the ground-based facilities with the same systems engineering rigor that we do the space missions. 
and, and that's been very productive for the ground-based missions. Um, but it, it, this crossover uh, is quite interesting. Uh, you know, in fact, somebody in the audience uh, did the calculation that I found interesting, uh, which is the camera that we had some difficulty installing, but the wide-field camera 3 that we installed on Hubble, uh, which was a very expensive camera, you know, somewhere in the probably $150 million range, uh, currently has the same sensitivity in its wavelength band as the 30-meter telescope will when it's built on the ground. Uh, and so, you know, you get to cheat by being in space. But now that the costs are starting to get comparable, you know, you get back to, you know, well, you know, how do you have balance? How do you have balance between these large programs that serve the largest fraction of the scientific community and the small programs? And, you know, I think the answer is you can change the risk equation, but when you get to these large programs, whether on, on the ground or in space, the, the risk comes back to being very important. But the other aspect of that is, is a, a donor can actually go to, you know, Mona Kay and put their hand on, right. you know, the, the telescope and bring, you know, members of the foundation and you can see it, and there's little risk that it's going to blow up on its way up the mountain. Well, if, if Steve's successful, maybe uh, the donor can actually go into space and see their uh, satellite in orbit. Um, but we've come to the point where we'd really like to get some questions from the audience. Uh, and I would ask, so there are microphones in, uh, so please line up. <laughs> We've got lots of students ready here. so shy. Yeah. Um, and if you want to address your uh, question. There's some uh, over here, too. Uh, <laughs> theory. If you want to address your question to a particular panelist, um, that's fine. If you want to ask a, a general question, that's also fine. Great. Well, There we go. Okay. Um, first of all, thank you so much for this discussion. It's been fantastic. One thing that hasn't really been touched on is the role of government regulation and its effect on the pace of potential progress to corporate human spaceflight. And so I wanted to ask particularly representatives from SpaceX and Virgin Galactic what their opinions are on how government can be more of a helping hand than it is being now. And if you could perhaps give us an anecdote or two of ways it's been good or bad. There's no question that uh, uh, kind of a new entrant to an industry always looks at the bureaucracy associated with it and gets really scared by it. But uh, for us, luckily, it's been kind of a differentiator. Uh, you hear these horror stories about getting through range safety uh, at Vandenberg and Cape Canaveral, and yet we found that uh, we were successful in, in breaking through and, and communicating and and, and making great progress, both at Vandenberg, Cape Canaveral, and, of course, at Kwajalein, an Army launch base. Um, when it comes to human spaceflight regulations, uh, luckily this has been on the radar for a number of years, um, probably since 2005, I think, when the COTS program was contemplating uh, commercial spaceflight. The FAA and NASA have been working very hard on that. I honestly don't believe that um, that, that regulation is going to stand in the way. I think certification is, is going to be a, probably the hurdle to get through, as opposed to, say, FAA licensing. Uh, very briefly, I think you're right. There, there's some good examples and bad. You know, I think where it's good is, you know, uh, we're, we're, I'm in an industry where if someone else has a bad day, that could be really bad for us. So I do think to the extent that you have, like, the FAA trying to create some, some sort of ground rules by which we all have to comply with, I do think is important. 
Uh, on the other hand, we're a new industry, so if you overregulate us, we just simply will never fly. I mean, the, the, sa the safest ship is one that never leaves the harbor, um, and, and we don't want that kind of industry. I think Congress, is, in, in our case, uh, has created the, the kinds of regulations as uh, administered through the FAA um, that will allow us to get underway. So before they start heavily regulating us like they do the airlines industry, we will have a chance to actually get some real data so they can have some basis by which to decide what makes sense and not just sort of kill it at its birth. Great. Thank you. Okay. Maybe right. on the other side here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you all for being here tonight. Um, so the first time I ever stood in front of a NASA astronaut, I was 10 years old. And I looked up into his eyes and I said, so what do I have to do to be an astronaut too? And he said, basically, study math, study science, and study hard. Well, some time has passed and <laughs> I've studied math, I've studied science, and I'd like to think I've studied hard. And I'm a grad student at Caltech now, I'm 22 years old, I'm standing in front of a NASA astronaut again, and I'd like to ask now two questions. First one's the same, what do I have to do to become an astronaut too? The second one is, in this rapidly evolving new space race, what is the job description of an astronaut going to be in about five to ten years? So study hard, study math. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the real question is, what do you want to do with your life? And, and what do you want to do in space? I mean, I'll be honest that when I was growing up, uh, you know, only test pilots were astronauts. We were doing the lunar program. I had a little Gemini lunchbox. Um, I loved science, and I wanted to be a scientist, and I never really thought about, uh, you know, what do I have to do to become an astronaut? Because in high school, I just assumed, for instance, if I was going to be an astronomer, that as astronomers go to mountaintops now, you know, back in the 70s, that by the time, you know, I was a professional, you know, and had graduated college, which was infinitely far off, uh, that all astronomers would go to space and operate space telescopes. Um, and my grand view of how the world would turn out didn't work out quite right, um, but it did work out for me. Um, I actually, <laughs> you know, in 1995, I was on the space shuttle operating a suite of ultraviolet telescopes, you know, wondering how did I get so lucky, uh, you know, that I could go from being a Caltech uh, research fellow, going up to Mount Palomar to observe one year, and, and three years later, I was in space observing with ultraviolet telescopes. I mean, just phenomenal. Uh, and so the first thing I would say is, is get into Caltech, uh, check. <laughs> and, and the next is, you know, you know, if you're really interested in space, then, you'll, then you're working in space. You're doing something that's related to the kind of things that we will be doing in, in exploring space. And, I, you know, I think the future, and of course this is somewhat, you know, biased view, but I think the future is going out and exploring and doing science. Uh, and we'll be doing science in space. But, but as a practical matter, you know, you have to be able to fix things. You have to be able to operate things. And so I think doing field work and, and people who are doing, you know, field expeditions either on, on aircraft, doing earth science, or going out, you know, into the field to do, you know, geophysics. Uh, when we send a crew to Mars, you know, I'm trying to set up a, a future where the first crew to go to Mars, the first women and men who will step first on Mars, will be astrobiologists and geologists. But in the meantime, there's a lot of work to do. But that's on the, you know, on the pushing the frontier side. Um, you know, I think with the advent of, of commercial spaceflight and hopefully, you know, more regular uh, flights to space, you know, there are going to be 
you know, commercial astronauts who are running, you know, the missions as pilots and, and in some cases as tour guides. Uh, and that will be the largest fraction of astronauts. And so I think this is a new world that we're moving into. Um, you know, there's a fellow named Robert Bigelow who wants to put up space stations where you'll have chemists and biologists operating and, and commercial astronauts uh, from countries all around the world operating research facilities. Uh, is that 10 years off or 20 years off? Well, you know, I was a, uh, you know, a 20, you know, roughly 25-year-old graduate student, you know, when I figured out the code. And that is, if you don't apply, you know the outcome. At least if you write an application to be an astronaut to whomever is, is hiring astronauts, you know, then you have a chance. And so that's the next thing I would advise you as a real practical matter is, you know, at some point when you know you're going to finish your degree, you know, you need to apply. Or, or you can get money and buy a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, Steve, I, I, I want to. Do you think a person that takes one flight suborbital on Virgin Galactic is an astronaut? <laughs> yes. Yes. Are he you going to have to wings? He has for to them? say that. Yes. Okay. Just, all right. Thanks. The X-15 pilots have gotten become astronauts because they've approached the the Kármán line. So yes. And by the way, I think it's also an entry level. I think as people get experience, they're going to want more. And, and, and so they're going to start with us. They're going to want to eventually fly on a Dragon vehicle and eventually, you know, go on Bigelow into the moon. Hey, you know, if your business projections work, that means there are going to be a hell of a lot of astronauts. <laughs> and that's a good thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, next question. Okay. You, you concentrated on one four-letter word about uh, risk for bringing down uh, cost. I'd like to suggest there's another one, and that's mass. And because it costs so much to launch a kilogram to orbit, $10,000 or so in constant dollars for the last 50 years, um, it's become space engineering practice to worry intensely about mass. And that has horrible consequences for mission cost. Uh, you can't have high power. You can't uh, shield your electronics. So most of your chips are custom made and so on. Uh, and that leads to uh, these runaway, one of the causes of these runaway mission costs. So have you considered uh, what it would mean if you didn't have to worry about cost anymore? If, you, if, a cost is, if, the, if SpaceX brings down the launch cost by a factor of five or 10, how will engineering practice for space change? So is this open to anyone on the panel? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, anybody want to take this one? Falcon Heavy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a gigantic launch vehicle. Um, it's uh, a fifth the cost of a ULA uh, launch vehicle, comparable ULA at current prices. Um, and hopefully that will alleviate the burden on the uh, satellite developers to quit worrying so much about mass. Now, th there's another way to think about mass, right? Uh, consumer electronics masses and sizes have, gone, have gotten smaller. Um, so um, we need to consider that also in satellite development. Instead of shunning commercial technology, I think we should embrace it and figure out how to make it work instead of just saying it won't. I think it is a good point, too, that um, the, the, uh, the Mars mission I was working on, the computer that we were going to fly, was just outrageously expensive. And no one would own this computer today. I mean, this, this is a 20-year-old computer. Um, because, just as you mentioned, this, you know, space-qualified electronics not just expensive, but they actually turn out to be quite old generally. And, um, and it is true that if you think about a class D uh, payload, these 
lower cost, lower, higher risk payloads. You know, you can take your commercial electronics and put them in a box, as long as the box is thick enough. And that gets to your question about the mass. And so, that's, so it is a very good point that uh, with, without a mass constraint, I think um, it would open up a lot of avenues for, for uh, engineering less expensive payloads. Right. This is something we should really study. <laughs> yep. um. Okay. Uh, next question. Hi. Rich Reber at JPL. Uh, my question is more for Steve. Uh, Virgin Galactic has made a very public splash with uh, offering up space tourism. And in the scientific community, you've made a big, um, big headway in, with uh, suborbital space research with the NASA's Flight Opportunities Program. But have you looked at more of the commercial side and looked at suborbital space transportation? Uh, the Concorde was very successful in this until it crashed and killed a lot of people. Um, <laughs> but it seems like Virgin Galactic and White Knight 2 and Spaceship 2 could be very successful doing transatlantic transportation for very high, high net worth individuals such as, uh, I think I saw a study of what if Oprah used it. Um, but I'm wondering if Virgin Galactic has looked at that business, mark, that, that business idea and done some studies into that. Uh, my boss, Richard Branson, has always talked about it. He always talks about point-to-point. -point. And why? Because he travels a lot, and time is money, and he'd like to see the world shrink, and so he'd like to find faster means. Our, our vehicles are not designed to do that, and frankly, it's going to take vehicles that, once you get it to any appreciable distance, starts to require the same kind of you know, thermal loads and the kinds of uh, technologies that right now are going for uh, space vehicles. But, but the short answer is, you know, yes, it's you know, someday this is where the place where the government, particularly in like a NASA aeronautics program, could help move the ball on that. You know, I, I think the first place that's going to happen is on biz jets. You know, they'll be the first to figure out supersonic, try to get it. You know, there'll be just a few, start off with the wealthy, but then again, it starts with that. And over time, we, we can bring down the cost of those technologies. So the short answer is yes, but the technology is not quite there. And this is a classic case where the government's going to have to sort of buy down the technological risk. So you really think there's a profit margin there? I mean, I do. You know, if, if you look, at, you know, the world's getting richer, and, and uh, time is money. And if you actually look what people are willing to pay to reduce the time it takes to go for very long distances, um, I think it, we're quickly getting to that point. But I think, again, there's some practical, you know, there's the sonic boom problems and overland, so, you know, there's things that have to be worked out. Yeah, I think that, you know, the sonic boom problems, there's uh, flying up at, you know, 60,000 feet and problems with the Earth's atmosphere and what you're injecting there uh, is, you know, with you know, the kind of fuels that we're using today. And, and NASA is pretty much out of that investment game. Um, and, and you referenced the X-15 pilots just a minute ago. You know, the X-15 program was one of the most phenomenal research programs mm -hmm. we ever had. Uh, supported both science, but it was an aerosciences project. And, you know, the X-15 flew suborbital flights at, at greater than Mach 7, uh, and that was in the 1970s that we stopped flying those vehicles. Had we had a research program that increased by one Mach per year, you know, which is a reasonable, you know, research goal, you know, we would have commercial space flight now, orbital flight with reusable vehicles. Um, you know, once we, you know, moved to the shuttle, which we made a jump from Mach 7 to Mach 25, uh, it, you know, that program, you know, which was a joint Air Force NASA program, ended. Um, but I think the, the opportunity that some of the uh, business jet manufacturers are looking at 
is for these rich individuals, these high worth individuals and high worth companies to build supersonic jets and they're looking specifically at how do we design an aircraft that produces a quiet enough sonic boom that you can fly over land and how do we look at novel fuels that would be clean enough that they wouldn't be regulated out of existence and that would, you know, both would be very beneficial for all. So I, that's another very interesting area and would also advance because of the life support systems and things that you need uh, in a jet would push forward, you know, the kind of things that uh, Virgin Galactic uh, are trying to do and, and SpaceX and the environmental control systems. Thank you. Okay. Uh, next question. Happy New Year, everyone. That's a great way to start the year, my estimation. Thank you. <laughs> um, my question comes from the perspective of having been an engineer for many years, working on spacecraft, um, bringing space science missions to reality. I've worked at Orbital Sciences. I was a civil servant at Goddard. Uh, I've met some of you in various capacities in the past. Uh, I was at JPL. I worked on MSL, done various other things in between. And each of you have made some really interesting key points that I have th thought about all along the way and sort of morphed my career into continuing to support science. I feel strongly about serving scientists as sort of a customer of mine in what I do as an engineer. Um, I'm now on the Gravitational Wave Observatory LIGO project here on Caltech, at Caltech, and it, that's related to John Grunsfeld's recent point about big science on, on the ground. Paul, you made some really good points about access um, for smaller science missions, and, and John, you did as well. Um, opportunities, realistic timescale opportunities for scientists who are going for the Nobel Prize in discovery, but aren't greedy about the size of their payload because it is possible now with huge technological advances in instrument technology to bring the size of all those things down. Surrey has set up shop in, in Denver to try and bring a lot of these small, small cube satellites in that class um, rapidly into, uh, you know, a manifest, a regular docket of uh, launch capability, or science capabilities, I should say. So my question really is, I was thinking about a point, Gwen, that you made in terms of well-executed architectural decisions. And I guess my, my question goes mostly to Steve and Gwen, but I guess everybody has an opinion about it, given all the roles that you've played. Um, what is the size of the fleet in the commercial arena that is going to help ensure ready access for any customer, particularly the scientific customer? Uh, it's, it's going to be a different answer for Virgin, especially in your small class of payload launchers, and it's going to be a different answer whether it's the Dragon or the Falcon 9 or whatever. But that's really what I've been thinking about a long, for a long time, especially given my experience at Orbital Sciences, where they were trying to approach problems from the fleet size, the fleet depth, the catalog of options that are available. Okay, so I, I think maybe the, is the question, um, what, what's the rate one has to sustain? Uh, in, in or, or the standing fleet that's available, that's advertised and known as available. If you build it, they will come. You know, your manifest is huge. It's you know, we've, we've actually thought question. about this um, quite a bit. Uh, and I, I'm pretty sure that if there were spaces available every quarter, like if you knew 
every three months there was going to be a flight uh, where you could uh, attach a, a free-flying satellite to a Falcon 9 launch that, that you could really do some very interesting things on a pretty low budget. Um, Dragon also offers the opportunity to conserve as the spacecraft bus and you basically attach your instrument to Dragon because Dragon is the bus. Um, so we are looking to uh, kind of expand Dragon from just cargo, just cargo and crew servicing. <laughs> wow, that's terrible. Um, but expand it beyond cargo and crew servicing of the International Space Station and have it be a free-flying platform for instruments that want to fly. And I think it's, I, we've looked at the market, it's quarterly. You need to fly, you need to have available space quarterly. Okay, great. So why don't we go to the last question um, of the evening. Looks like we have a, an aspiring young scientist here to ask the last question. Yeah, hi, my name is Annika. I'm a homeschooled high school freshman, and my question was actually for Gwen um, about SpaceX's plan for Mars. I really love Mars, and when I found out that you guys were theoretically planning a colony there, I was ecstatic. <laughs> <laughs> so happy. But I was just wondering if you could, if you had any information about that, and also what you'd be looking for for people to go to Mars in the future, and also when that would be happening. I'm going to be a tiny bit flippant about okay. what you need to do to, to be part of the, uh, the settlement on Mars. And by the way, this is not something that we're going to do on our own, of course. Um, but we certainly are um, starting to talk about it more broadly. Well, probably next year is the time frame where we'll talk a little bit about the architecture that we think makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, it changes consistently. Uh, and we want to be pretty firm about that and obviously work with our NASA partners as well and kind of bounce ideas off. Um, but flippantly, what is it going to take to be a settler on Mars? You're going to have to like camping. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about this at dinner. Yeah. Okay. Well done, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. So we're now at the end of the program. I'm sorry we couldn't get to everybody's questions. It just shows uh, that... There was a tremendous amount of interest, and congratulations again to Eric for all his hard work. And my thanks to the panel for an excellent and lively discussion, uh, leaving everybody with lots to think about. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.